Good morning on this beautiful Palm Sunday morning. It's good to be with you. My special thanks to Alex for taking time to lead us in worship. That was pretty special and and, uh, enjoyable for all of us, no doubt. It's lovely to be together again, even from long distance, to know that uh, we're together with our our time in the Word and our time in worship and our time in prayer. That's what I'd like to start with, if you would. Let's... um, Let's bow together and just give this time to the Lord, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to come and and be over your word. We certainly uh, are glad for your word and and the the, uh, joy it gives to us and the security for uh, the patient enduring that it encourages us to do for uh, the encouragement to prayer, to seek you, to seek you for our nation, for our leaders, for the world. And Lord, we do that today. We we ask, first of all, that as those who are followers of you and know you, that we won't walk in any fear. And uh, even when we hear numbers of people who are being infected and those who have passed on into eternity, that our, our main concern, Father, not for ourselves, but for those who are lost, help us to, be, uh, help us to remember that the fields are white on the harvest. Help us to remember that uh, we have an obligation uh, to serve you in that way, to bring the Great Commission and to give the gospel out. Help us to take every opportunity we have to tell about the new, uh, the, the hope that's in us and the good news that we know. And Lord, thank you today for a time that we'll spend over your word. We're so grateful for how clearly the Apostle Paul so long ago gave us uh, some very clear fruit of repentance, what that looks like. Lord, I pray that we'll uh, allow your Holy Spirit to work it through your word as he would, desiring very much that we manifest these things as believers and that they be part of our daily life. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Reprove, correct, instruct, Lord, as you see fit through your word. And then, Lord, uh, for us to then go out as we finish this time of worship and we get into this uh, this week Uh, that it's ahead of us where perhaps people's thoughts are turned more towards the church, more towards Christianity, more towards what Christ has done. I pray that you'll give us opportunity to witness, to bring into our heart even now those that we need to witness to, and help us to lift their names before you as we long for opportunities to do that. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. We're together again in our our time in the Word, God's plan for a healthy church, a study through uh, the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, Godly Sorrow Part 2, the Fruit of Repentance is where we are today. I'd like you to turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 7, and we are going to move right into our passage today. It is uh, really my desire to finish this passage out. It uh, You'll see as we get past verse 11, which is so densely packed with fruit, that it opens up a little bit and we're able to move through and see some philosophy uh, of ministry from Paul. It'll just be a real joy, I think, to to look at those things. And so I hope it's a blessing for you as well, as we've been praying this week, into salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. 
Verse 13, For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Verse 14, For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. Verse 15, His affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Verse 16, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. You perhaps have seen this often, that popular advertising tactic of the before and after picture. Uh, Facebook and, and Instagram are, are popular uh, venues for that kind of thing, certainly with the ketogenic diet and all the other things you see. Uh, certainly diet products, I think, dominate, but also, you know, hair and makeups and, uh, and makeovers and all that. Before picture almost always is the least flattering picture possible. I no doubt um, altered at least a little bit to make it look even worse. And the after picture, of course, is the exact opposite, the most flattering possible. Uh, the purpose is usually to get you to purchase some product or buy into some routine. But the concept isn't new. And, and last week we began our look at godly sorrow and the fruit of repentance. And in many ways, I think repentance is illustrated well by the before and after advertising tactic. Because isn't part of the motivation to repent the fact that the believer has come to an understanding of the before picture? I mean, if you really think about that, uh, the reality of the before picture really goes far beyond maybe some of the before pictures you remember of, of bad hair or pudgy waistlines or a high school senior picture or a glamour shot that some of you ladies had done back in the 80s. We thought uh, we looked great, we thought we looked cool, only to revisit the picture 20 or more years later and come away with uh, quite a bit different opinion. The before picture in the spiritual realm really is the product of the work of the Holy Spirit. And he lets us get a, a view of how our sin really looks, and which, if it is truly godly sorrow, like we talked about last time, is infinitely more shocking than bell-bottom jeans, a fanny pack, your grunge clothes, your glamour shot. The, the picture that of what our sin really looks like gives way to a change of mind about it, which is revealed by a change of behavior. And last time we picked up in verse 11, we began to see through these verses what true godly repentance looks like. And and we saw that the first response, that first part of the verse really gives an overriding response as we start to look at this passage. He's, Paul says, For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. A godly sorrow that led to repentance produced earnestness. And this is a word that we've seen over and over again the idea is that when they were sorrowful to repentance, the first thing that changed was they were eager to do something. And this really appears to be the general heading for the 12 things that Paul illustrates that are indicative that true sorrow and that has led to repentance has taken place. And that was our first principle. That was number one. Uh, the fruit of true repentance, when true repentance comes, there comes an eagerness to correct bad habits. And it's really the most initial reaction of true repentance and to eagerly and aggressively pursue righteousness no matter what. And that eagerness is going to prove to be the main ingredient in all the other indicators. So as we read through the rest of them and we begin to study them, remember that that earnestness then is on top of that. So it's not just a, a ho-hum chalance of maybe I'll get to it, maybe I won't. It's never like that. True repentance is never like that. There's an earnestness to 
do these things. And that's why Paul, I think, places it here right at the beginning. And the before picture that we talked about just a minute ago that must have been so clear in the minds of the church in Corinth produced such a godly sorrow and, and a change of mind on how they thought about how they used to look that it produced true fruit. And, and so we can recognize that the things listed here really become an example, and that's what we can look at them as. They're an example of common fruit shared by all who've experienced true repentance. I think that's the reason why they are here in such uh, clear distinction. Their, their repentance had real substance. It was practical and visible, and it had observable effects. And I think that we can say the very same thing about true repentance in the life of the believer. And so everyone who comes to repentance then will manifest these fruit and to a greater or lesser extent. Now, the, the, great, the last part of verse 11 is where we really jump in and we begin uh, this fruit. He says this, he says, What vindication of yourselves, he says, What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And that next one was what vindication of yourselves. And we asked last time, what does it mean to earnestly desire to vindicate yourself? And we kind of put to rest the, the thought, the worldly thought of just making excuses for yourself. And really, that's not it at all. In this context, what appears, it appears to mean is they had this longing to clear the stigma that had been attached to them because of their sin. That was, that was the vindication. They, and that was principle number two of the fruit of true repentance. When it comes... Part of the fruit will be an earnest desire to make up for your wickedness and restore people's trust and confidence in you. When repentance comes, there's going to be an eagerness to show you've turned around. And then this, he says, what indignation, and in the verb form, it's to be displeased or angry with an action. And, and here, namely, it's your own, your own actions. We often associate it with righteous anger. And that was principle number three we saw last time, the fruit of true repentance. When true repentance comes, part of the fruit will be an anger at the shame that you brought on yourself. And it's an anger over how you were deceived, perhaps. It's an anger about how you caused so much sorrow by your actions. It's an anger about how you were arrogant and disregarded God's word. You see this often in salvation testimonies about when people are clearly able to see where they, what they used to think and how they used to be. And that becomes really expressed very clearly in their testimony. And we stopped here last time, what fear, and that's the word phobos, the word found a lot in the scriptures. But in this context, we saw it's referring to a new or revived reverential fear uh, of God uh, as a controlling motive for everything in life and in all matters. Uh, a thought about God as you think about how you are going to behave. And that was principle number four, the fruit of true repentance. When it comes, part of the fruit will be a holy dread. A, a humble reverence for God who has been grievously offended at the sin that was committed. And that may be more inside the own, your own heart, more than you express that, but it will be a really a way to really revive flippant worship, worship. If you find yourself just kind of going through the motion, you're not thinking about the words when we think about worship, when we're worshiping, of course, in a number of different ways, but we worship musically, and if it's just a flippant worship and you're not really dwelling on those things, perhaps uh, this is where you need to revisit. It's a fear that a holy God may be dishonored. It, it will enrich shallow prayer. Instead of just a grocery list of things that you need God to take care of, you're going to start uh, much like Jesus instructed his disciples to start. Our Father who's in heaven, your name is holy. That's where he started before he got to any of the requests and any of the supplication that he had. 
It was a reverential fear and understanding of where God is and what his position is and his authority over us. And so I think as we think about fear, we're going to see it again in just a moment. Paul's going to recycle it as it moves out, on out to how they interact uh, with everyone around them. But here, as it, as it really affected how Paul interacted with the church, I think it's a very important uh, concept. Now, let's look at the next three at the end of verse 11. And uh, these first two are ones that we've looked at with definitions already. He says this in verse 11. He says, what longing at what zeal? And we looked at these two before. They were both phrased longing for me and zeal for me, if you remember, by Paul back in verse 7. And it was really identified as an answer to Paul's own longing for the church to have it reciprocated. Paul longed for the group there in Corinth. He had zeal for them, and he wanted that reciprocated back. And you're longing to see me again. You're longing to hear me again, to sit under my teaching again, to have the relationship restored to what it was. Your zeal for me, that means you, you love me enough that you're determined to defend me and not let the relationship be tarnished, watching over it closely. That whole thing, as Paul was talking about that, all those nouns, feelings expressed by the church, and Titus then is relaying them to Paul, and at the end of each one is the implied for me, referring to the apostle. And it's likely when Titus finally caught up with the apostle Paul, that may have been the first thing that he told them, told him about the church, uh, because the feelings of the church towards Paul were probably some huge encouragement to Paul. Paul was depressed, he was uh, no rest in his spirit, no rest in his flesh, and so I'm sure Titus realizing uh, Paul's sorrow and Paul's longing for the church probably expressed this to Paul early on. But using the words here again, I think, help us understand really a broader application in the life of, of one experiencing godly sorrow. And that was principle number five of the fruit of true repentance. When true repentance comes, part of the fruit will be a longing to develop godly, lasting relationships based on a bond of eternal things. And coupled with that, We'll just put them together. Coupled with that is a fierceness to protect the unity of the body against anything that would harm it. That's, this is really a body dynamic that's going on in the church. When true repentance comes, it's certainly an indicator uh, that these things will occur. Who, the people who walked in the flesh, in other words, uh, but, you know, gossipers, uh, backbiters, you know, people who sow discord in the church. Beloved, just in general, yeah, and this is what we're talking about here, what what, uh, what's going on in the church, uh, what longing, what zeal. But, but just in general, if you think about people who come and, and, and are guests with us on, on a Sunday-to-Sunday -Sunday basis, I, I just want to make sure that you're clear. Godly, godly people who come into the fellowship are looking for those kinds of relationships. They're looking for longing. They're looking for zeal in that relationship. This is the spiritual dynamic that believers long for. Close, faithful interest in more than what the world is interested in, which is just cliquish and superficial and based on mutual hobbies or character traits. Godly sorrow and mature believers desire the same thing. That's a longing for growth, a craving for accountability, and a zeal to, produce, uh, to pursue really both of those things uh, with intensity. When people come and they're godly and they're, they're looking for a place to begin to fellowship, these are the things they're looking for. Okay, they're not looking for some, you know, some hobby thing, some mutual, you know, clickish, superficial thing. They're they're looking for deeper, and and this is certainly fruit of repentance here, but it's the ongoing fruit of people who are godly. They want that kind of thing. Now let's look on to the next one, and then we have this evidence of godly sorrow. 
Paul says, not only longing and zeal, but avenging of wrong. Ectacasis. That's a noun. We see the word nine times in the New Testament. It's, it's translated vengeance. It's translated justice. Uh, to avenge a number of times. It's retribution. And we see it illustrated in Luke 18, 7. Just to kind of get a sense of this, and I don't think we can really get a sense of what avenging of wrong means. Uh, maybe, you know, we might think perhaps in our worldly perspective that that's kind of uh, making sure people know we were upset and we're making clear that how why we're upset and, and what they owe us. It doesn't have anything to do with that at all. Luke, Luke 18.7 says this, uses the same words and we can get the sense of the words. It says, now will not God bring about, here's our word, justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice with for them quickly However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So here's a question. Um, as you look at Luke 18, um, what do the redeemed cry out for? What do the elect cry out for? Justice. Twice, it says, actually. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay in bringing it? I tell you that he'll bring about justice. Romans 12, 19 again gives us a sense and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Never take your own revenge, that's our word, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for it's written. Here's our, note, here's our word again. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. And, and the use of, in our passage, is not immediately clear, I don't think, without those illustrations. But it appears that the best way to look at this as a fruit of repentance, and this is principle number six if you're taking notes, the fruit of true repentance, when it comes Part of that fruit will be, catch this, a desire to see justice done, a longing for wrongs to be made right. I think you can sense this, right? When you become a believer, for the first time in your life, you begin to see the world very clearly like the Lord sees it. You see the injustice that's done. It becomes apparent to you what's being done that's wrong. And, and most of all, for the individual, it's owning the wrong if they are yours, no matter the humiliation. And that becomes a fruit of repentance, this owning of the wrong, this desiring for wrong to be made right. It really reminds me of a story I read a number of years ago. It, a guy, Al Johnson, a Kansas man who came to faith, maybe you, you saw this, it made the news uh, not because he came to faith, but because after he came to faith, he confessed to a bank robbery he participated in when he was 19 years old. And because the statute of limitations had run out on the case, he couldn't be prosecuted for the offense but he still believed that his relationship with Christ moved him to right the wrong, and he even voluntarily repaid his share of the stolen money. That's what I'm talking about. That, that kind of desire for justice, he understood what he had done wrong, and even though nobody knew, and even though it didn't really matter from the world's perspective, had he come forward or not, he did. And, and if you remember in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, again, we get this sense of, of a desire for justice, of a desire for rights to be made wrong, uh, during the time of the Great Tribulation, we get a snapshot of some who've been martyred for the name of Christ uh, out of those who've come to faith since the rapture. So the church is caught away. You have uh, this this great soul harvest that's going on with the two uh, witnesses and with 144,000 and many, many, many uh, millions, I think, are going to come to faith. And many, many, many hundreds of thousands are going to be killed for their faith. And and this 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 really rings out for us as we think about the desire for justice. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, so they're under the throne, the Bible says, and they're waiting 
and they're waiting till the glorious appearing of Christ. And it says, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from, here's part of our, here's part of our word, judging, and this is our word, avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And, and the thing that I think is important to realize as we look at that passage, true repentance brings about a fresh desire for justice to be served, both, both in the lives of believers who are wronged and certainly for God to be vindicated. And that's part of that, that desire for the avenging of wrong. It's for the Lord to be vindicated. You know, the first time Christ came, he's crucified uh, and, and despised and spit on. The next time he shows up here at the glorious appearing of, of uh, our master, it's not going to be uh, that situation. And we long for that, don't we? We long for rights to be right wrong. We long for the, the wickedness to come uh, under judgment. We want the, the evildoer to be revealed and, and to be punished. We want that. We, we desire that because that's a holy desire, and that's a desire that God wants as well. And so there is, there is a new desire or, or a fresh desire perhaps, uh, depending on where you are is in this repentance cycle, for holiness and for truth to prevail and, and, and to deal with wrong and to make it right. And these are things that are the, the real fruit of repentance. And then this last sentence of verse 11, which I said is by far the most dense in revealing a fruit, uh, the tree of godly sorrow really is loaded here. And so it's taken us a while to get verse 11 through verse 11. But as we move on, uh, we'll be able to kind of spread it out a little bit and, and kind of slow down and, and see some in each verse. But in, in uh, verse 11, it says, in everything, so right at the end of the verse, it says, in everything, you demonstrated, your, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And Paul appears to use this verse to really, and I think you can see this, kind of sum up everything he's been saying. And so when he says, in everything, so if you think about it, as Paul receives the report from Titus, and this is an active report, and so Paul is then writing his response, it just appears to Paul then that in everything, Titus is saying about the church, in other words, and their response to the sorrowful letter is all going in the right direction. So in every area, in all the things that matter, in other words, Paul says, in everything he reported to me, you, and here it is, demonstrated, Eris, active, indicative, soon as tao, so soon as with, and histomy, which is the second part, is stand. So in everything, it's to make something stand out. That's the idea. And here, it's to make something known by an action. And if you remember Romans 5.8, and I'm not going to put a slide up because you know this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. So what did God make known to us by his action? His love. And what was the action? Giving Christ as the ransom for us. And in our passage, what did the Corinthians make known by their actions? They proved yourself to be innocent in the matter. So the word is the adjective hagnos. It means purity or holiness. And all Paul appears to be saying here as he sums up these first six fruit of godly sorrow is really our seventh principle. And it is this. When true repentance comes, this fruit will be visible. This changing of the mind isn't based on your own definition. In other words, they came in line uh, with what he was saying. You, you don't get to, in, in true repentance, and you, you'll see this, beloved, as you work uh, your way through life and in ministry, you see false sorrow, which leads to death, and it doesn't manifest true fruit of repentance. And then you see true sorrow, godly sorrow, that leads to salvation and leads to life. And here's the thing. You don't get to do what's comfortable for you and leave off what isn't comfortable. And you wouldn't want to. Before, they weren't holy. And now, what? It's visible. 
And that was the whole point of John the Baptist preaching as we, that we looked at a few weeks ago. Remember when they asked him, what should we do? So he's teaching and repentance has come on them, a sorrow for what they've done. Now, what do we do, John? And they ask, and when you're delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, there will be this demonstrable, visible kingdom and, and it's going to be fruit. And these, and if these things aren't there, just from the other side, we don't see these things. If you're not proving yourself to be innocent in the matter, if, if you're not going in the right direction, there is reason to question the validity of the conversion. In other words, it just kind of cements everything in. This is the direction it's supposed to go. And so he's making it very clear to the Corinthians, this is exactly where you should be. And I think that as we extrapolate that on out for us, we understand that, you know, these are non-negotiables. These are things that have to be in place. A true godly sorrow is the key. It's there. And that's very important. Now, First Peter chapter 3 really illustrates that for us. And, and we see this, and I love this passage. Um, in the same way, Peter says, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. In the same way that we're submissive to Christ. So he goes through the whole submitting to Christ and, and acting as Christ had, and he didn't defend himself when he was wrong and all that kind of stuff. And then it comes to this part, and it, our word is there. Actually, two of our words are there. And I'm not pointing this out in some way to just kind of point at uh, women because there's a number of passages in Peter that point to men. But just because our words are there, I want to use it. In the same way, you wives, it says, be submissive to your own husbands. So come up under them so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, so you're married to a, a real difficult person. You're married to someone who doesn't love the Lord. You're married to someone who, who hates the church. You're married to someone who criticizes Christians. You, you just fill it in. And I'm sure a number of you who are going to listen to this may be married to people just like that. But here's the deal. You may be married to someone who's disobedient to the word. Be submissive to your own husbands that they may be one without a word of, without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe. Now, this is our word chaste, that's the word hagnos, that's pure, and, and just for added benefit, this is the word phobos, respectful behavior. Two words we saw, both were part and parcel of true repentance, of true godly sorrow, and we see them incorporated here in Peter's instruction to wives. So again, holiness is visible all the time, right? No, not yet, but as we think about this whole idea of true repentance, and then we see it illustrated here, Holiness is visible and is the fruit that indicates a change has come. And Peter says, if holiness is there and respectful behavior is there, then you may be able to win your husband without a word. And, and in this case, that may be all it takes to win an unbelieving husband to Christ. Well, I think nagging him to go to church will do it. Nope. Making him feel bad about what he does is effective. No, ma'am. According to this verse, the best chance of your husband coming to faith will be by your holiness, which happens also to be the best indicator that true repentance has come in your life. Now, look back at verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. And, and here Paul is giving some insight to his ministry philosophy, and we'll just mark it that way in our mind. And we get this as we work through Paul. He kind of cycles back around again, and he kind of gives a summary of, uh, summary of, of some of the things he says. That's what he's doing now. And this has a very interesting feel to it, and we get some insight into Paul's motive. Paul is just saying this. I wrote the sorrowful letter to you, but my purpose wasn't to defend myself. That's, what's he, that's what he means for the sake of the offended. Who was the offended one? 
It was the Apostle Paul. So I wrote to you not to defend myself, and I didn't write it to get even with someone. That's what it means to say, for the sake of the offender. That refers to the one who's, who's been so cold and so hard on Paul and, and, and in this context. Those were not the driving motivation for the writing of the sorrowful letter. We already saw that he wanted them to take a hard look at where they were spiritually, and he had chosen his words, and I'm sure he doubted the whole thing after he gave it to him, and we looked at all that. But look at this next part. He says this. He says, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. And so, as we look at that, we can really kind of say it this way. Ultimately, Paul says, my motivation was that you would be reminded of your affection for me and your desire to have back what was lost would become apparent to you. And you would make it clear to everyone. And then this last part, and God also could be your witness. In other words, it would be sincere. So this is our eighth principle. When true repentance comes, there will be a realization of what was lost and a strong desire to recapture it. And that really is Paul's reason for writing the sorrowful letter. It's kind of like an overriding philosophy. It's really a coming to your senses moment. That's really what he wanted. And, and Paul doesn't have to remind them of what was lost. They, they remember it and they long for a restored, flourishing relationship. I wrote that letter, Paul says, to help you shed the fleshly control and get back to spirit control. And, and if they were going to add this to the previous list of, of faithful ministry and spiritual responses, which was our previous study earlier in this passage, we won't do that. But if we were going to add that, we could point out that really faithful ministers always really desire to appeal to the spirit's control of the person he's ministering to. Now, of course, this is only going to apply to the redeemed because the unredeemed don't have the spirit. But if you're ministering to the redeemed, if you've got some trouble between people or if you have trouble in a marriage or whatever it is, uh, and it's certainly the case here in our passage between the church and with Paul. Paul is appealing to the believer to return to walking in the Spirit, and then they won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. Because he says he knew that if he could get, get to the new man, they would be reminded how they were supposed to feel. And, and that is really a special thing if you think about that. And there doesn't need to be some accountability partner or, or someone urging them to feel a certain way. See, if it's true repentance, the Holy Spirit is able to guide correctly as soon as a believer stops quenching his work. And as a footnote, there's, there's a lot of crossover application here, and we won't go down this trail too far, but this happens a lot in marriages, beloved, where the husband or the wife get all tangled up with sin and, and imaginations and deception, and, and they get away from fellowship, see, and they get away from church. Uh, come into church and personal time in the Word, and they forget then, and they lose touch with how they really feel about their spouse. See, And they get tangled up in the temporary. But if you can appeal to the new man, and if they stop quenching the Spirit and all those things, stopping coming to church and all their imaginations and all the stuff, getting away from fellowship, and they're not time in, they don't have time in the Word, see? If they get away from quenching the Spirit, God can give back the years of locust day. And I've said that dozens of times to, to marriages. You know, God can give you back the years of the locust state, like he told his people in, uh, in ancient times. They'd, they'd been chastened by the Lord. They'd had difficult times. They're very lean times. And he says, if you follow me, if you do what I say, if you obey me and submit to me, I'll give you back those years. It doesn't seem possible, but the Lord can do it, see. And we've seen that happen many times in marriages. 
And it's the same with friendships and families and those that leave the church. If Sometimes if you can just strip away the deception and the sin and the misunderstanding and appeal to the new man, the Holy Spirit is fully, listen, he is fully capable of instructing those individuals on how they should feel and returning them to the sincerity and the earnestness that used to be there. He's fully capable. And again, this verse and the, and the next verses are very, very simple. They, they're not as packed as the previous ones, but very profound, I think, and really help us think through this whole process of ministry and how really it's and how it's really supposed to work out. And there's just so much obvious truth, and each of us could probably provide anecdotal evidence to, to these things, no doubt. And that would be such a blessing to be able to hear them. But look at verse 13, if you would. Let's keep moving through our passage. Verse 13 says, "For this reason, we have been comforted." And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus because, and here's the section we're going to take a hard look at, his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Now, besides our comfort, Paul says, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus. In other words, um, Paul is getting his information from Titus. And what he gets from Titus brings him comfort from his depression. We saw that earlier. And we talked about all of that. But Paul adds another dynamic which really is going to help us see another fruit of true repentance. Like we pointed out before, partners in ministry share both the joy and the sorrow of ministry. If you're a partner with someone in ministry and they love the church like you do, they have the same heart, they can see the same issues that are in play, and I've had the joy of ministering with many people, uh, many men in ministry and women in ministry who have that same heart. They, they grieve when the church is uh, struggling and they rejoice when the church is, is flourishing, and this was the same with Paul and Titus. There's that dynamic going on there. So Paul sent Titus with a sorrowful letter because Paul's earlier trip had, was just disastrous. It didn't accomplish anything. It was very, he had to be very hard on them, and they did not respond well to it. And so Titus, no doubt, has gone with a really heavy heart. He's concerned, just like Paul, about what the reception would be. And, but the Lord had started something along the way and had begun to deliver some of the people from the snare they were trapped in. And so Titus is refreshed by what he experienced. And this is cause for rejoicing for Paul, and the passage actually says that very thing, because his spirit, this is Titus, has been refreshed by you all. Refreshed is the perfect passive indicative, anapapo, anapao, uh, it literally means to cease from any labor or movement, it, and it's temporary, it's to recover strength, uh, perfect passive, it's temporary pause, it implies some toil and care, and then a pause from that toil and care, which we know to be true, and I think it's important that he put it here in just that way because its chief significance is taking or causing to take a break, a rest. We know Paul will still have to deal with issues and people in the church, and we know that in his mind as he's penning this letter, Second Corinthians, we know that he's where he's headed for, for with it, and you can read ahead and kind of see the other things he has to talk about, but he's saying in this issue, and, and of course all of that other thing is true in ministry in all its forms, uh, and around any time prior to the rapture. Ministry is difficult, but um, it's always the next part of the passage that I want to draw your attention to. And uh, Paul says, we've, got a, we've had some peace here temporarily. And he says this, uh, besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus because the spirit has been refreshed, and here, this part, by you all. So Titus reports to Paul about the real attitudes of the Corinthian congregation. Here it is as a whole, not just a few people. And and this is a congregation that as a whole has been very fragmented, remember? And as we went through 1 Corinthians, that was very obvious. I couldn't speak to you as mature men, but as infants in Christ because of your carnality, remember? He says, and some of you say, I'm of Paul and I'm of, and I'm of uh, 
Apollos and I'm of Cephas. So you had all these factions, you had all these people sowing discord, all that kind of stuff. So it's no surprise that the majority of the church was going the wrong direction. But when we get to this passage, especially that last part, and this is our ninth principle, when true repentance comes, mark this, beloved, there's going to be a change in the church, a concerted effort, particularly by those that have been wrong, and kind of refer back to what we said before, avenging of wrong, to right the wrong, and all those attitudes and the backbiting and all that, and fix it. However far they spread that, whatever had happened as a result of of their of their sinfulness, however far it went, however many people were involved, see, that's how far you have to go to make it right. That's a fruit of repentance. However far out it was that you caused damage, that's how far out it is that you fix it. And when you think about Matthew 18 and you think about, and this is just kind of a side note, if you think about the church discipline, and the way church discipline works is one goes and then a couple of people go, and then if they won't respond, then you tell the church, see, and if they, if they won't respond to the church, then you put them out of the church for the destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved. And as you go backwards through that, you realize that at any point where they repent, at any point where they return, at whatever level that was, however far up it went, it was just one and they repented, that's all it has to go. And if it was a couple, then they repented, it just has to go to the couple. But if it goes out to the church and then they repent, they comes to the church, see? And it's just however far out the, the sorrow went, however far out the gossip went, however far out the sin went, that's how far out you have to go to make it right. And what Paul's saying is that there was this concerted effort by you all, he says. And that's what happened in the Corinthian church. See? However far out, that's how far they had to go to make it right. And the effort's going to bear fruit. And those that were truly sorrow-filled and with godly sorrow knew they had responsibility to fix what they participated in. And so there was this new attitude prevailing with the congregation, not just with one person. And for the moment then, Paul says, there was relief. Paul knew there would still be some problems, but for the moment, he celebrates the unity of a large group and movement in the right direction of more than just one because they had realized their complicity in propagating the disunity. And they were truly sorry they'd acted on it. And, and then verse 14 gives us another insight into Paul's philosophy of ministry. And, and this next one is just so refreshing, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. It's what faithful ministry looks like, and it's what real love looks like. And Paul says this in verse 14. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. Now, I want you to think, sit back and think about this whole context and think about that statement. He could have said to Titus, the church is never going to get this right. They are the poster for complaining and disunity and gossip and disobedience. And in that second statement, he would be right. They were the poster, easily the worst church in the New Testament. He could have said, Titus, here's the letter. Don't expect much. And from a fleshly perspective, that would have been a reasonable way to segue into giving him the letter. Go, but don't have high expectations. Go expect resistance. Go and expect people to beat up on you. Whatever he could have said. right? And, and as a minister, you're tempted to do this. If you're in ministry long enough, you can develop this attitude that you know that no matter what you do, somebody or some bodies are going to complain about it. 
or uh, no matter how you word the letter, it's going to be taken wrong. But that isn't what we see with the Apostle Paul. What we see is Paul revealing his heart really on both sides here. So we kind of blend in what we've understood so far in the study. Tremendous conflict that was there. No rest for my spirit, no rest for my flesh, depressed because of the response of the church. So we, we had that in Paul's heart, struggling because he wrote the letter and certainly probably doubting himself and very sorrowful because nothing's reciprocated back from the church, even though he's poured himself into the church. No rest. Every reason to be pessimistic. But to Titus, but to Titus, what did he say? Apparently, he boasted to Titus, and we get some history here, before Titus even came, in the middle of his hardship, at, on the heels of a, a visit to the church that was disastrous, he boasted to Titus that the church would respond biblically to the sorrowful letter he was sending with him. That is, that is so amazing and so encouraging. Because it really, I think for us, illustrates what love does. And I didn't put a slide up for this, but 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Do you remember this? Love is patient. Love is what? Kind. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Verse 7. And it bears all things. And what? Believes all things. And hopes all things. And beloved, if there's any example of that working its way out, in Paul's life, it's right here. The tendency would be to just be pessimistic. You're already depressed about a visit. You're already depressed about the response of the church. And you're writing this sorrowful letter. And you're just saying, you know, I wouldn't hold out much hope. And I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of, of telling sometimes people you know, who are on the receiving end of very hard circumstances from someone and just say, you know, I... I'm going to do this, but I wouldn't hold out much hope. And I, you know, I, this was this was hard on me as I read as I read through this. You know, I justified it. I'm just like, well, my experience has been over the years, you know, and I always put that in there. And I've had some experience, but it's irrelevant. The way Apostle Paul worded it was this: For if anything, I have boasted to him about you. Whatever I said about you positively, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. And that's what he's doing here. This, these marks of love, love in action, when he brags on the church. He didn't say, here's a letter, don't expect much. He confidently believed the best in the middle of his sorrow, and he was right. And, and that just reveals a lot about Paul's philosophy of ministry and his disposition towards the church and ministry. See, And again, we could put that into God, uh, godly ministry and spiritual responses. And again, you know, we could have jumped forward and grabbed these, but I think they're much better right in the middle of the passage, and we just kind of incorporate them uh, for what they are. See. It just reveals a lot about Paul's philosophy. And now, let's look at the last, uh, this first part of verse 15 as we begin to wrap up. His affection abounds all the more toward you. So, talking about Titus. Titus is reporting to Paul. Paul obviously senses his affection, Titus' affection towards the church. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And beloved, this is, this is a fruit of repentance. It's just obvious, I think. But you wouldn't know it sometimes when you're interacting with, with people who are ungodly. But principle number 10 is this. When true repentance comes, there's a willingness to submit to the authority of the Word of God. That's what he means by the obedience of you all. And I guess the question is, can there be true godly sorrow 
and also a rebellious streak. Is that possible? I don't think so. And I'll obey this part, but I don't feel like doing the other part, or, or my favorite, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm still going to do it. Is that true repentance? No, not, not according to this, I think. Uh, we, we see he remembers the obedience of you all. His affections abounding. Why? Because they begin to obey what the Word of God says. A person with true godly sorrow will say, I just want to be obedient. There's no, there's no limitations on there. There's no small print, right? I just want to do whatever I'm supposed to do. Please give me direction. What do I do now? You know, there's no foot dragging. There's no limitations. There's no hesitation. And nobody has to keep prompting you to do it. See, when true godly repentance comes, you just want to know what you're supposed to do so that you can do it. It's again, like, like John the Baptist is preaching. What do we do now? Godly sorrow has come. Now what do we do? Here's what you do. Okay, instruct us. How, how do I live? See, that's the fruit of true repentance. And then look at this part of verse 15. He says, and how you received him with fear and trembling. And that's, the, that's number 11 when, when true repentance comes. And here it is. And we, we get the, we're recycling fear back through again. And I told you we were going to get to this. But I think that there's a really a much broader application here I think you'll enjoy. When true repentance comes, not only is there a willingness to submit the authority of the Word of God, no questions asked. What am I supposed to do? And I'll do that. See, I've had people contact me. It's been so refreshing. So I'm in this situation. What does the Bible say I should do? Man, I love that. And that's my own heart, too, in raising children and dealing with relationships and doing all the stuff that you do through life. You're in a place where somebody's taking advantage of you or whatever. What does the, what does the Bible say I should do? Because that's what I want to do. Because I don't know what to do here. I know what my flesh wants, how my flesh wants to respond. But I don't want to respond that way. So what do I do? And, then, and so not only is it is that, but it's how you received him with fear and trembling. When true repentance comes, there's a reverence towards God, a humility, and a healthy fear of judgment. It's not how they're thinking about Titus or Paul necessarily. And we saw fear in number, as number four. Paul just repeats it here and he adds trembling which is the Greek noun, tromos. The word is used to describe an anxiety of somebody, mark this, who distrusts their ability to completely meet all the requirements. That's the issue. And I'm going to give you some illustrations so you can see this word used other places so you know we have it right here. But in Luke chapter 8, verse 47, Jesus is making his way to heal someone who's asked him to come and heal. A big crowd of people, his disciples are around him, and somebody touches him. Do you remember this? And and he says, he turns to his disciples and says, someone touch me. And they're like, Master, we're in this huge crowd. Of course somebody touched you. Everybody's bumping everybody. He goes, no, no. And, and other, other of the gospels says, some power went out from me. And then it goes to this part, which I love so much. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came, and here's our word, trembling, and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This is... This is a woman who'd, who'd been all kinds of doctors. She was still sick, and she goes, and she has faith. She knows if you just put her hands on Jesus, uh, even without him noticing her, she's going to be healed. And, and, of course, that faith is uh, in his ability is what uh, prompted the miracle to be done. But she, he, she came trembling. She gets noticed in the huge crowd. She's hoping she's going to blend in. She'll be healed. She'll give God glory because Jesus did it. But she gets noticed, and she's trembling. Why? Because she doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to say or do. Um, mark this. She doesn't know how she's going to be received. See. 
And when you think about the, the fruit of true repentance, see, when, when Paul first came to Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, you remember this, I was with you in weakness and in fear, and here's our word, much trembling. Remember that? He wasn't sure what to expect. He was, he had some fear. There was a lot of people who were, there were a lot of people against him. He's in this little island of the redeemed in the middle of all this paganism and idolatry and all of this, and he, he didn't know what was going to happen or how he'd be received, see? And I think that's the issue in our passage. This isn't Paul or Titus being viewed as if they were in some kind of special position like people treat the Pope. That, that's, that's not it at all. The idea is that after everything that's happened and all the offense they perpetrated on Paul, they were sorrowful, so they had repented and they were showing fruit of repentance, but after all of that, and, and they, were, they wanted to know what the Bible said, they wanted to be obedient and everything, and they, but they really weren't sure what to expect. See, After they perpetrated all of this stuff and they come back and they were humble and they were a little fearful of the judgment of God and maybe a reproving from Titus, maybe they thought they'd come back and he'd, he'd also give them a, a sorrowful a speech. So they're trembling. And so Paul adds it here, I think, because that's what Titus reported. It became very noticeable to him. Not only did they want to know what to do, they were obedient in all things, but they were trembling too. And that became such an encouragement to Paul because it showed, listen, a brokenness and a contrite heart. And mark this, beloved, those things are always welcome fruit of repentance before the Lord. A broken and contrite heart and obedience to what, what does the word of God say? What does your word say, Lord? That's what I want to do. And I'm sorry for what I've done. And there's a little bit of trembling there because you're not really sure how you're going to be received. See? And if we go backward into this, I think we can see we can see that that you know i'm not sure i'm not sure what's going to happen but i'm okay with this i'm okay with just being obedient and i'm okay with whatever happens because i just i'm i just want to walk with the lord and i want to re, i want to resolve these things see and then this last one of verse 16 where this one obviously we're going to close and this is again so remarkable that paul says this he says I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So he uses the same word in everything. So everything that we've been talking about, all these fruit of repentance and everything that Titus has told him, see? And then he says, I have confidence in you. They were in fear and trembling. This last one, they wanted to be obedient to what the word of God said. And all these added to the ones that came before. How did Paul respond to these obvious evidences of true repentance? He very simply says what? I believe you. I believe you. And again, if we back into this, I think we can see principle 12. You know true repentance has come when the individual is worthy of trust. And how are they worthy of trust? Showing forth the fruit of this repentance. They're worthy of faith. They're worthy of confidence. They are believable. And that was where Paul was at this point. After he'd heard the report from Titus, he was able to say, I've heard enough. Titus has seen enough. In this issue, I have no more concerns. And this is really the last bridge to cross, perhaps the hardest one for those who've been betrayed. If you kind of break this out a little bit, and, and you know this expands out with ripples into all, all kinds of parts of life. If you've been betrayed, if somebody's been hard on you, somebody's done something, uh, and they've 
they've come and they've apologized, they've shown forth fruit of their repentance. The hardest part, you know, maybe a wife or a husband betrayed by their spouse, a parent by a child, you know, a, a pastor by people who tried to destroy him, as Paul's situation certainly was. Because this is the issue that brings an end to the situation. You've shown forth fruit of repentance, and now, and now you have to let it go. Now you have to trust. They're worthy of trust. Now you have to believe. You're hoping all things. You believe all things. And and it's convincing, beloved, because it includes the things we've looked at from this chapter. I'm not saying you 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 believe them when they haven't shown in these things, but when they've shown forth this fruit, which is perhaps the most comprehensive list in all the scriptures, illustrating really the foundational issue of repentance springing from godly sorrow. And so we can recognize that the things listed here really become examples of common fruit. So this isn't just isolated to this passage. This is common fruit by all who've experienced true repentance. And I think as you've seen this, you can easily relate to this. And that leads to salvation for the unredeemed and restoration for both the newly saved and the true believer. All, they're always the same. They're always there. See, And you're worthy of trust when there comes an eagerness to correct these bad habits. And the eagerness in all of these things. It's the most initial reaction of true repentance to eagerly and aggressively pursue all of these things that we've just been talking about. See, That eagerness will prove to be the main ingredient in all the under indicators. And you'll be worthy of trust when you, when you add these fruit, very visible fruit, an earnest desire to make up for your wickedness and restore people's trust in you, and an anger at the shame you brought on yourself, and a holy dread and a humble reverence for God that wasn't there before. He's been so grievously offended and you're, you're concerned about the sin that was committed and you're, you're angry about it and you have a dread and a fear. And when the fruit of an earnest longing to develop godly, lasting relationships based on a bond of eternal things and a fierceness to protect that, you know, an earnest desire to make sure that doesn't get uh, fractured again, see, and a desire to see justice done. You know, when, when the fruit of a desire to see wrongs righted and admitting wrongs, no matter how humiliating it, it might be for you, and an innocence, a purity, a holiness, the fruit that's there is very visible. You're not defining it yourself. You're not trying to manipulate it at all. You don't get to do what's comfortable for you and leave off what isn't comfortable. See, you wouldn't want to. And an earnestness on our behalf, which we saw there, that's the fruit of the realization of what was lost and a strong desire to recapture it, perhaps in a marriage, what was lost and a desire to restore that and have the years back that the locusts ate or in, in a relationship issue in the church, uh, coming to your senses moment and, and you want to recapture what you've messed up, see? And you're going to be worthy of trust when you add to that a concerted effort by those that have been wrong to right the wrong attitudes no matter how far out it went to fix it, no matter how far out you propagated it. And that's going to bear fruit and then obviously a willingness to submit to the authority of the Word of God. You're worthy of trust when these things are in place because there can't be true godly sorrow and also rebelliousness. There can't be true godly sorrow and I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm still going to do it. A person with true godly sorrow is going to be, I just want to be obedient. I just want to do whatever I'm supposed to do. Give me direction. Nobody has to berate them. Nobody has to keep pushing them. True godly sorrow does that because the Holy Spirit knows how to draw that person. And then this part, you received him with fear and trembling. True, when true repentance comes, there's a reverence towards God, a humility, a healthy fear of judgment. And you know true repentance has come when the individual then is worthy of trust. Because if those are in place, that relationship can be restored. When those are in place, 
salvation has come. Because these things are not pulled out of your hat, beloved. You're not producing these things from the fruit of your flesh. Only the Holy Spirit can produce that fruit and only from a tree planted in the soil of godly sorrow. That brings us to the end of this passage. And I hope it's been a blessing for you and encouragement to you as you as you work through relationship issues, as you work through uh, troubles perhaps in your own life, uh, trust issues with someone around you, that perhaps you were the offending party. Uh, these things certainly will resonate with you if you truly have godly sorrow that leads to repentance and to life. But there's no way I can possibly cover all of the different applications. The Holy Spirit does that. And when the word goes out, it goes out, does what it's supposed to do, and doesn't come back void of response. And so my prayer for you is that uh, the Holy Spirit is able to work. I'm appealing to the spiritual man or woman in you that those things may resonate and you may act on them. Amen. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we're grateful to you today for your word. And we say that every week and we sincerely mean it beyond all of our earnest desires. We really desire and are very appreciative of your word and how it very clearly expresses to us what you expect. It's not based on what we think about it. It's not based on how it makes us feel. It's really based on what does your word say, what does it mean by what it says, and how does that apply, and then taking that action that you've prompted us to do. Lord, help us to be perfected by these things. You are able to see into the hearts of every individual, all parts of the church. You know where they are. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll encourage them as they need encouragement, as you are already doing by your Holy Spirit, and that you will reprove them as they need reproving. And in, in, in always strike out those words I have said and that in some way get in the way of what you desire to do with your church. It's yours. Just an under-shepherd desiring very much to take what you prepared in the kitchen to the table without dropping it. And so, Father, encourage your church, bless your church in this difficult time. We pray, uh, as we think about this difficult time, that you'll bring an end to the virus that's ravaging the world. For the sake of the righteous, Father, I pray that you'll protect them and for their sake and for their prayer's sake, that you'll stop the difficult time that we're in, if that be your will. We want your will to be done. We certainly want the church to be pure. We're certainly aware that this virus has revealed a lot of things about us and not just about our infrastructure and the infrastructure of the world, but about our own hopes, about where we've placed our trust, about things we focused on, about our own fears. And Lord, I pray that it will continue to reveal the things you want it to reveal that will be perfected as your church to be more salt and light, better salt and light in the community. But Lord, we pray uh, for an end of the, of the sorrow and the death that you will. And Lord, I pray for the, uh, us as Berean Church that we might go and be salt and light around us, ministering in the name of Christ and then telling about Christ. What a joy it will be when we're back together how we will so not take for granted fellowship time. How we'll so not take for granted the time of corporate time in the word and prayer and corporate worship to music. Lord, we're so grateful for those things and we long for them back again. And we know that someday you'll fulfill them completely when we're with you in glory. But Lord, we desire, if it be your will, that we be restored to that kind of fellowship and closeness that we had before this all started. But in all things, your will be done. And as your people, we long for the presence of Jesus and we long for his return. May he come quickly. And all God's people said.